Let's pray. Let's pray together. A loving Father, we thank you that you are a powerful God who knows the end from the beginning and nothing happens outside of your will. We thank you that you're a personal God who bids us pray, as we've thought already this evening, longs to have us plead before you in prayer. So, Father, help us think through these matters. We pray we'd come to a right understanding of the scriptures and therefore we would pray rightly before you. We do ask it for the sake of your name. Amen. Okay, uh, have you, have you got one of these sheets then? Two, I'm going to push through, I'll try and push through fairly quickly so we have time for questions, starting a bit late. Um, two sections really. I want to think first of all uh, about God changing his mind and the second thing is can we change God's mind? The two obviously relate. Now what's the problem, the problem for us? Well if God changes his mind, I take it that is a problem. Um, what if he changes his mind about you being a Christian? What if he changes his mind about Jesus' work being sufficient for us? I mean, these are really obvious examples. God changes his mind. That, that's a bit of a problem in a whole number of ways. We can't trust his promises if God changes his mind. It's a pretty big deal. Because when you come to the presenting issue in prayer, um, if God doesn't change his mind, why do we bother? If God does change his mind, does that mean we know better than God? Or we're able to influence him? And then how does that work? What if, is it a bit like um, a vote? And if 60% pray A... But 40% pray B, A wins. Is, is that how it works? I mean, how do, is it a demo, democracy? Is it like a clapometer, a prayerometer? If you sort of whip yourselves up into enough of a frenzy, it raises all sorts of issues for us. Let's um, <clears throat> jump on in. The, when you come to God relenting, the verb that's consistently used really throughout the Old Testament, where these things mostly come up, is um, the Hebrew verb. It gets translated slightly different ways in different passages. He was grieved, he relented, he repented, he changed his mind. Always the same Hebrew verb, Nacham. Um, but depending upon your version, NIV, ESV, and even within versions, sometimes they vary how they translate it for the sake of variety. Okay, divine repentance then. What does the Bible mean by God relented? or God changed his mind. Three things to say. A. There are numerous places in Scripture where we're told God does not change or repent. There'll be some, so um, they're there on the sheet. Perhaps the most striking are the second, the last two, Numbers 23:19, because it almost seems part of God's definition of himself. So Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Nacham. So the difference between God and man is, God cannot lie, God cannot change his mind, unlike a man. Or 1 Samuel 15, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So it almost seems part of the definition of divinity is you don't change your mind, unlike a human. Always the same. You could change his mind there. You could equally translate repent or relent or grieve. 
So there are numerous places in Scripture where we're told God does not relent. Second thing here, B. There are numerous places in Scripture where we're told God relented. Oops. Um, and it's always in response to human behavior. So, I mean, the number down on the sheet, Amos 7, twice. The Lord relented, this will not happen. A promised judgment. The God in Amos, um, God is threatening judgment. And uh, chapter 7, verse 3, the Lord relented. Chapter 7, verse 6, the Lord relented, this will not happen. We looked at this in the morning um, a couple of months ago, 2 Samuel 24, verse 16. When the, Lord, when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. That's in response to David's prayer. Uh, in Amos, I should explain, chapter 7, this is in, in response to Amos saying, please no, Lord, please no. 1 Samuel 15. Until the day Samuel died... He did not go to see Samuel again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved or repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now the really striking thing there is, 1 Samuel 15.35 is six verses after 1 Samuel 15.29. You see those two? So just under A, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind or relent. Six verses later, the Lord relented or repented that he'd made Saul king over Israel. What do you do about that? You either say the writer of 2 Samuel is stupid and within six verses makes a pretty significant error, or there's something else going on here. Uh, Psalm 106, verse 45, for their sake he remembered his covenant out of his great love. He relented. Okay. So place in Scripture, God does not relent. Place in Scripture, God does relent. It gets complicated. Let's try and bring those two together. C. God's relenting in response to human repentance and prayer is part of his character and plan. It's a very significant sentence. God's relenting in response to human repentance and prayer is part of his character and plan. Now let me distinguish between prophecies of the Old Testament. We could do this at some length. I'm going to try and be brief. There are numerous examples I could give for all of these. This started off as about a ten-page thing, and I had to sort of try and whittle it down to do it more succinctly. The, um, so some prophecies in the Old Testament come with conditions attached. They're really easy to understand. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you'll not stand at all. If then. Well, that's fairly, that's a, that makes sense, doesn't it? Some prophecies in the Old Testament are underlined by an oath or a promise. God sort of types them in bold. So the sovereign, Amos 6 8, the sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I'll deliver up the city and everything in it. And it seems whenever the Lord underlines a promise with, this sort of statement, I've sworn by myself, I've taken an oath, then he's really saying these things won't be broken. Or Isaiah 49, 18, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, you'll wear them out as ornaments, you'll put them on like a bride. I'm swearing on my own life. 
Well, very intriguingly in Jeremiah, and we'll have to come back to these three, Jeremiah 7, verse 16, Do not pray for this people or offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen. So it's precisely the same in Jeremiah 11, 14, 14, 11. See, you've got examples. God makes a promise. I'm going to judge the people of Israel. Amos 6, 8, and I swear by myself I'll do it. Isaiah 49, um, I'm going to bless my people as surely as I live, I swear by myself. Jeremiah 7, I'm going to judge these people, so don't pray for them. See, in each of this case, there's a sort of reinforcing of what God wants to say. Now, here's the really significant one, though. Those, are sort of a, those one and two are a bit of a preamble for three. So still under sea, God's relenting in response to human repentance and prayer as part of his character and plan. The third element here. Most prophecies in the Old Testament are formally unqualified, but have implicit conditions. That, again, is a fairly significant sentence. By that I mean I've, every word and it matters. Most prophecies in the Old Testament are formally unqualified, but have implicit conditions attached to them. Don't be surprised by that. So Jeremiah 18. Here is God explaining what he's like. Jeremiah 18, verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed... And if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I'd planned. Huh. If at any time I, I say I'm going to judge these people, they repent, I will relent. That is my oper modus operandi. That's how I always behave. The flip side of that, if at an, verse 9, if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted and it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will relent of the good I'd intended to do for it. Huh. So do you want to know the sort of God that I am, he says. I am one who relents in the face of repentance and relents of doing good in the face of immorality. I will always do that. So... Whenever he makes a promise to judge or to bless, this is, there's an implicit condition attached to it. Because he said so. Prime example, Jonah 3. Familiar story. Joseph's, uh, sorry, Jonah has emerged from the fish. Uh, he's um, got back on course as a prophet. Jonah 3, verse 4. On the first day, Jonah started into the city, proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. Huh. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, excuse me, to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. He issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any beast or man, herd or flock taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let man and beast... Be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. 
verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction he threatened. It's a prime example of what's being spoken about in Jeremiah 18. I announce judgment, the people repent, I relent. Don't be surprised by that. Jonah wasn't. So Jonah 4 verse 2, Jonah says to the Lord, Ugh, because that's the sort of mood he's in if you know Jonah. Ugh, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. I knew this would happen, says, says Jonah. You send me to judge these people that I hate, but I know the sort of God you are. Your mercy always has priority over justice or judgment for you, as we saw in Genesis 18. I know what sort of God you are. I knew that if I preached um, judgment, they'd repent. And ugh. So that's why I didn't want to preach to them, because I didn't want them to be relenting. I wanted you to judge them. So he's annoyed. Because he knows the character of God who relents in the face of repentance. That's one example. The other good examples uh, I've put on the sheet there. 2 Chronicles 12. That's the um, King Rehoboam repents in great humility. God changes his mind. 2 Kings 22. Josiah leads the people in repentance. God changes his mind and doesn't judge. Uh, Jeremiah 26. Hezekiah, the king, repents, is deeply sorry for his actions, and the Lord relents. What do you take away from those? First, we need to say this carefully, but relenting is a part of God's unchangeable nature. Now, he is never surprised. So Jonah is correct. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to say, he could have said to Jonah, hey Jonah, can you go to Nineveh? Tell them I'm going to judge them. When you do, they'll all repent and I won't judge them. That's how it's going to play out. And Jonah would have been even more in a hump. Um, God is not surprised. He uses threats he uses promises to achieve his ends so don't be surprised at that so relenting of let's keep it simple relenting of judgment in the face of repentance is always something god does he is never taken by surprise when people repent he always intends it to happen he uses threats as a tool to achieve his purposes, which he knows in advance. It's the most significant thing. Some prophecies are really warnings with tacit conditions attached. So there's a prophecy, I will judge you in three days. It's not spoken, but if you read the small print of the, of the prophecy, it does say in the small print, of course, the Jeremiah 18 clause does apply unless you relent, in which, unless you repent, in which case I'll repent. These, prom- these prophecies have implied conditions attached to them. But also in this, the human response to God's word is presented 
as crucially important. So God doesn't say to Jonah, go and preach judgment, and whatever they do, I'll let them off the hook. No, their repentance is significant. It is part of God's plan. There has to be repentance for him to relent. Okay, that being the case, that's more about God relenting generally. Let's get specific on one particular issue. Can we, therefore, change God's mind in prayer? Three things to say. First, God is sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning. Uh, The simplest one is uh, the bottom one, Ephesians 1.11. He is the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything happens according to God's plan. Now, that raises a whole separate issue, a separate bucket of issues, which I'm not going to undo. Do you undo a bucket? Um, I'm not going to unlock that. Because what, what, what do you say about that? Um, because, you know, God stands behind everything, yes. Bashar al-Assad, yes. Adolf Hitler, yes. Not with pleasure, but he, they all happen within his sovereign will. But God is sovereign. A whole number of others down there. Acts 17, from one man he made the nation of every man that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the time set for them, the exact places where they would live, and so on. God is sovereign. Second, God is personal and responsive. Now, hopefully, this, hopefully this has come out in the, as we've looked, worked our way through Genesis. You know, uh, chapter 16, he's deeply personal in how he relates to, to Hagar. And all these interactions with Abraham and Sarah, the Lord is deeply personal. But let me give you one example, that, to my mind, one of the most striking. In Exodus 32, Uh, Moses is up the mountain. Uh, God is giving him the Ten Commandments. Meanwhile, the people say to Aaron, what's happened to Moses? He's been gone for ages. Stuff him. Can we have another God, please? Aaron says, yeah, I'm your man. Throw all your gold in the fire. Whoop, out comes a golden calf that Aaron um, um, makes for them. And um, they all worship the golden calf. God says, Exodus 32, verse 9, I've seen these people, and they're stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. I'll start again with you, Moses. But, but, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say... It was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. Now, what do you do with that? 
you could say, golly, good job Moses was there. And Moses said to the Lord, hey, what about your reputation? The Egyptians will say you're a silly God. And the Lord said, tell you what, Moses, that completely slipped my mind. Thank goodness you're here. I thought I'd have made a terrible mistake. Um, now, the first point, God is sovereign, doesn't allow us to say that. Also, do you really want that sort of God? The sort of God of dementia? Hello? Can I just remind you, you've, you've, you seem to have forgotten to make the sun rise this morning. Have you just forgotten that? No, and obviously it doesn't. But the, um, you don't want that sort of God. What do you say? Do you say, well, all prayer is, is just changing the prayer? When we pray, Lord, may my exam go well tomorrow, it does nothing. God doesn't care. It just changes us. It makes us into a more prayerful or dependent person. That seems a bit odd. Why not pray that you become a prayerful and dependent person? Um, it seems rather convoluted to pray something that God doesn't care about. What do you say about this? You have to say, God cares. He's sovereign, but he's personal and responsive. He responds to the prayers of his people. Now, how do you put those two together? Answer, it's really hard. Let's be honest, it's really hard. God is sovereign and before the creation of the world planned every single second of your life and yet he's responsive to your prayers. It's really hard. And if you get too philosophical about it, it drives you nuts. Oh, I'm serious. Um, whatever it was, eight years ago, eight years ago I was at theological college and my wife had been in hospital for three months uh, uh, about... It, real complicated pregnancy back and forth off the maternity ward and one night I drove again to the hospital um, she was there permanently I was studying for exams waste of time um, no they were, they were sorry I shouldn't say that but when your wife's in hospital for three months you, you start to care you know the beginning of the year I really wanted to get a first by the end of the year I just wanted to get out you know it just slightly changes your perspective but um, I was driving to the hospital the next morning I had an exam on the, character, the doctrine of God, it was called. It would have essays such as, does God change? Um, that sort of stuff. And so my head was full of the sort of philosophical arguments. And I'm going to the hospital praying, Lord, I pray tonight that my wife doesn't die, because there's a serious possibility of that. And I pray that the child inside her may not die. What am I doing praying to you when you do not change? If you're not careful, you go nuts. God is sovereign. He knows every second of your life before the creation of the world. But he's deeply personal and responsive. Putting those two together is hard. But the Bible insists that we do so. So this is the third thing here. God has revealed himself deliberately. How do you and I pray? Three little things. Pray, holding together God's transcendent sovereignty. He's outside time. He knows the end from the beginning. He's in charge of everything. Works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. 
Hold that together with his historical intimacy. By that I mean he acts and responds in history. Hold those two together. How do you do that? You and I can be used to bring about God's purposes through God's own appointed means. So does prayer change God? No, never. Does God change circumstances? Yes, often. Because God has so structured his universe that he acts in response to the prayers that he knew his people would pray. But hold on a minute. Isn't that... That doesn't feel personal. It doesn't feel... Like existentially, this very moment in time, if I cry out to the Lord, it makes a difference. But it does, because he is deeply personal. Or to put it slightly differently, pray in the way that Scripture encourages. There is never a case in the Bible when the sovereignty of God discourages people from praying. Or, rephrase that second point. It's useful and good, essential, to have a systematic theology. When you take everything out of the Bible and try and put it together in blocks, God is like this, humans are like this, that's very important. But it is not more important than how God reveals himself in the Bible. They're both of equal weight. So it's good to have a systematic theology, but you do need to read the Bible as God has presented it. And... In Genesis 18, he says, look at this man who pleads. In Exodus 32, look at this man who begs. I love that. And I respond to that. But hold on, Lord. Hadn't you always intended that before the creation of the world? Well, it depends who's asking. If you're Matt Fuller sitting in the exam room, then, yeah, you can formulate that answer. If you're Matt Fuller in the car on the way to the hospital and you're crying and you're wondering, is my wife and child still going to be alive in six hours' time? I'm deeply personal. Don't pull those two apart. Both are true. It's it's just not that one is more important than the other. Both are true. He is sovereign. He is personal. And when he presents himself to us in the scriptures, it is as people having a very real and personal impact upon him. Brackets. Yes, I know before the creation of the world he always intended these things to happen. But when you're praying, you need to know that. But plead, because that's what we're modelled in the Bible. I've got time to give them all. An interesting one is Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says, verse 2, Lord, you promised that in 70 years, after 70 years, your people would be uh, relieved from exile. 70 years is nearly up. I beg you, will you now release your people from exile? Daniel, why are you bothering? God said in 70 years you can go. Why do you pray to him about it? Because that's what believers do. And in response to Daniel's prayer, God says, oh yeah, off you go. Not quite as simple as that. But um, very strong. that's how the Bible presents it. God expects us to be pleading with him. Last thing, pray with hopeful ignorance about the future. So I'm... 
when, when I'm doing a little search on these things, the last three quotes I put on the sheet, Jonah 3.9, we've had already. The king of Nineveh says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn his fierce anger so we may not perish. We will not perish. Joel 2. Who knows? Verse 14. The Lord may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. 2 Samuel 12. David says, his son has just died. And David says, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. So the model of praying is, who knows? Who knows? But let's do it. Let's have a go. And those examples, Jonah 3, who knows? Well, maybe the Lord will relent. Yeah, he does. And Nineveh is safe. Joel 2, who knows? The Lord may turn and have pity. Yeah, and he does. Yes. 2 Samuel 12, David says, who knows? But the Lord doesn't. David's son does die. So you don't always get, you know, it's no magic formula. If I pray, can I get a pay rise tomorrow? Who knows? There's nothing magic about it. But it does model for us a hopeful ignorance. So pray with a hopeful ignorance. Do you see what I mean by that? No, I don't know if the Lord will bring revival to London. Hey, but let's pray it. Who knows? He might. Tell you what, if we don't, he won't. If the Ninevites hadn't repented, he wouldn't have relented. So let's give it a go. Who knows? He might. So let's go. Let's be optimistic about it. Who knows? He might have mercy. Pray with hopeful ignorance. Um, does anyone want to ask questions about this? Yes, yeah, so I'll just make the point. You know, sometimes we may struggle. Um, what's the point in praying? We'll do if nothing else because the Bible tells you to, commands you to. Yeah. yeah. Do it because it's obedient. That's always a good thing to do. Is there any hint of why God chooses to work this way? I don't know how else you want him to work, really. Um, because he's wise and good and says it's the best way of working. Um, because our actions have real significance and yet the world never runs out of his control. That sounds pretty wonderful to me. Um, I mean, you can have it the other What are your options? The world is under his control and we are merely automatons and nothing we do makes any difference. That sounds pretty dull. Or we have the final say and what we do is of absolutely determinative significance so that God doesn't know the future. Well, I don't like that either. Um, it's not, and this is not an issue of what I like or don't like. It's what the Bible says. There are some things which we'll never understand. When's the time to say we'll stop thinking about this? As with all these things, uh, one, I think, helpful phrase um, my lectures at college always used to use you want to shrink the field of play as small as you can get it um, so here are all potential possible answers to why do we pray and you you put a few biblical pegs in the ground until you're left saying well the answer's within this little triangle so not here not here not here the answer lies within here but within that triangle we can't go in And that's true of a whole number of issues. When you come to how do you have a trinity, how can three be one? Well, you can define that tightly and say, not this, not this, not this. And somewhere in there, one God in three persons. But you know, so there are a number of times 
theologically we say, well, let's shrink the area of debate and we can all do, as long as we're all talking about this little triangle, that's fine. But some things are offside. So in this sort of discussion, you can't say God doesn't know the future. That's, that's outside the, I don't know why it's a triangle, because I can do it with my hands. The um, square. That's outside the square. God doesn't know the future. So we're not having that. Jesus, so you just shrink the area of debate or discussion as small as you can get it. And then say, wow, God is God, I'm not. And I bow before him. He's wiser than me. Summarize and slightly add. Do the simple one, does God change his mind? Answer, no, never. And yet from our perspective, it seems that he does. So, did God change his mind with respect to Nineveh? No. Because he's outside of time and simultaneously relates to every single point in history, he knew before the beginning of the world that there would be a wicked city called Nineveh. He'd send Jonah to tell them they were about to be destroyed, but they would repent and he wouldn't. So God never changed his mind. It was never his intention to judge Nineveh. But because we relate, because we're bound in time, it seems to us that he has changed his mind. So no, God is outside of time. He's not constrained by time. Time is something he's created. Um, And he relates to every single point of history simultaneously. Um, But we don't experience him that way. Because we have to. We have no... We can't stand outside time. So Sunday is not Monday. They're different days to us. But God relates to both simultaneously. So does God change his mind? No, never. But we may perceive it as such. And certainly prayer changes circumstances. Meaningfully, because he's a God who acts in response to human prayer and repentance. That's how he has always intended to do. So our actions are enormously significant. What does that mean? Should we pray? Yes. Yes. Pray hopefully. Pray with hopeful ignorance. Who knows? Who knows? God may do something extraordinary. What happens if we don't pray? Will God not do something that he had intended to do? Don't worry about that. Um, I think very helpful is Mordecai. I've always enjoyed Esther 4. Mordecai says to Esther, the the Jews are about to be destroyed, decimated. Mordecai Mordecai says to Esther, God will save his people. Who knows if you'll be the vehicle for that? Who knows if God has a pilot placed you in the king's palace for such a time as this? I don't know that. I do know that God will save his people, maybe through you. So Esther, do what you can. He doesn't say, God will save his people, so go and have a cigarette, Esther. What does it matter? It doesn't matter what you do. He says, God will save his people, maybe through you, so go back and do what you can. Act with hopeful ignorance. Pray with hopeful ignorance. Act as if God will do extraordinary things in response to your prayers. Because that's how the scriptures encourage us to pray. So pray the way the Bible does. Let me lead us in prayer.
Our Father, what wonderful truths that you're a sovereign Lord and also that you're a personal Father. Those are two wonderful truths. How those fit together, we don't understand perfectly. We can start, we can have some idea, we can use metaphors, but it's a mystery to us how you, the timeless one, enter time to relate to us. It's a miracle, a miracle we're very grateful for. But Father, in all this discussion, we do pray above all that we would be prayerful, that we would pray with a hopeful ignorance about the future, trusting that you could, who knows, do extraordinary things in answer to our prayer. So Father, who knows if you'll have mercy upon this city of London, but we pray that you might. And over the next decade, we would see countless thousands bowing the knee to Jesus Christ with a depth of repentance and faith which is striking, which is not a shallow faith, but a wholehearted commitment. Father, we pray that you would do that for the honour of your name.